this is causing friction. This is the podcast where we get a little uncomfortable, a little awkward on our journey of healing through mindfulness and becoming self-aware. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today I have with me Ariana. Ariana, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit before we get into today's topic? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a registered psychotherapist in Toronto, Ontario. For people in the UK, Australia, the designations are going to be a little bit different. Even in the US, um, I think I would be like an LPCP or something. But um, registered psychotherapist, basically what that means is um, I do talk therapy primarily. And, uh, you know, and then that can include anything from skills training, um, like dialectic behavior kind of skills training, communication, uh, interpersonal skills, stuff like that, um, to, I I guess, what we're going to be talking about today, grief. Um, I wouldn't say that most of my clients right now are grief clients, but most of my, like, they are kind of the largest demographic of my clients. Um, And uh, yeah, I've, I've been morbidly drawn to death. So uh, you know, but I mean, that's the majority of it, but also you get grief. Of course, people don't, don't usually consider the grief that comes with, uh, you know, the loss of a partner, um, when you have a breakup or like a friendship that's ended kind of abruptly or things like that loss where you can actually technically get closure, but, um, you know, it's hard or difficult or impossible to, to do so. So anyway, that's just, that's kind of where I uh, specialize. I do have a private practice, although that's that's currently um, sort of on hold. Uh, just, I, I joined a clinic uh, back in May. And, uh, and so, you know, we, part of it was I, I don't take new clients into my, my private practice, but Advance Health is the clinic and um, we have some really fantastic therapists. Um, I haven't actually met that many of them in person, but um, one of them is a very close friend of mine and she's the one who kind of brought me in and it's a lovely little, um, just a warm community. I, if, for any listeners who have ever been part of a community built entirely of therapists, it's just sometimes very, you know, lovely and and kind of like supportive and not sometimes most of the time today's topic is definitely going to be mostly around grief but I'm so glad that you brought up also the fact that there is grief in situations where someone is still living and we need to accept the fact that someone can still be out there but we still have a grieving process whether that's through a breakup or whether that is through no contact in a family situation, Absolutely. there is a different kind of grief. And what I want to ask you about this time of year specifically is if you can kind of go through the grieving process around the holidays. I can imagine that grief is 24 uh, 7 all year round. It doesn't necessarily go away. Just some days are maybe better than others, but I know specifically that the holidays can be very triggering for people. So can you just walk through what the grieving process like around the holidays? Um, And then also, do you, in your professional opinion, think that the holidays trigger kind of those typical five stages of grief all over again? Mm. So uh, just a, a quick note on the five stages of grief. I, I was originally, before I actually got into grief work, kind of dismissive of them. Um, and then I got into grief work. And actually, when you, you know, read Kubler-Ross, who was the one who um, came up with the stages and, um, you know, 
David Kessler, who I think at the time was a student of hers or something, but he does uh, webinars and courses and, and all that kind of stuff on grief work now. And he's defined the, sticks, the sixth stage of grief, which is um, finding meaning. Um, and I don't know if that's like been an official addendum to the to the stages, but anyway, um, the the five stages just for everyone out there, uh, we've got denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And the idea that uh, Kubler Ross had wasn't so much that they were like steps. It's not that you're moving through them in any sort of linear process. Um, you can start with acceptance, right? Um, or a seeming acceptance. Anyone who came into my practice and they seemed like pretty chill about a loss, I would tend to think that they're largely kind of like dissociating or in shock or something like that. Um, but, you know, could you could start off with acceptance. Okay, this is what happened, you know, and you see this a lot in um, situations where you're kind of forced to just like you just have to get on with it kind of quickly and you don't really have the time to process the grief. Um, that's where sometimes you get that acceptance kind of early on. Um, so it doesn't always start with denial. Denial is pretty commonplace to start, but it also depends on, you know, the type of, of grief that you're going through. For instance, if it's the separation from a toxic family member, you may start with anger or depression, right? It might be something like, um, you know, you've tried, you've put up boundaries, and I know some of the questions you asked, you asked about boundaries and how to enforce those around the holidays, um, you know, that can be really tough. And I have a number of clients who, um, either are just before this stage or kind of at this point where it's like, okay, so we've tried the boundaries, we've tried enforcing them, we've tried holding firm, and they're still being violated. So what now, right? And uh, so anyway, all of that was a very roundabout way to say that um, people can relive those five stages, um, just not in any sort of linear order, usually. Holidays, yeah. So... Holidays are difficult. Uh, I'm going to say, you know, generalizably, holidays are difficult for people who have had to split from toxic family relationships. You know, if that is their, uh, you know, holidays were important before. If holidays had a, a tradition or a ritual or something associated with it, then, you know, those are going to be difficult. I would tend to, I would tend to attribute that more to the ritual or routine or habit itself. Um, you know, there's a lot of emotion and stuff wrapped up in that. And so, uh, you know, whether you like it or not, your body is ready for Christmas, right? And then that Christmas, that first Christmas comes around and it's different. And, you know, so-and-so is no longer at the table or you are no longer at the table and your family is um, maybe conspicuously silent. Maybe they are harassing you. Maybe they're, I mean, there are a whole bunch of different reasons why someone might leave um, a family dynamic. And uh, so, so yeah, so that, I mean, that grieving process can be really tough, especially because it can come with such mixed feelings, right? Not just those, those five states, um, but also, you know, there might be people in the family who you still really love and keep in contact with and want to be a part of their life, but you can't do this really, you know, important ritual with them in this way anymore. Um, of course, you can start your own rituals and that kind of thing, but, you know, 
you don't have the you don't have the, the original thing with the with the feeling and the um, I guess connectedness. Um, just earlier today, I was reading an article on um, I think they're called like found families or um, constructed families or something. It's um, of course in uh, you know in the LGBTQ plus uh, communities, this is nothing new to them. Um, you know, you get families who are um, casting out members of their family who have a sexual orientation that they don't like, agree with or or you know trust or accept or you know whatever it is um sexual orientation gender identity uh you know i mean there are lots of different other uh presentations um you know some some kids get kicked out just for like straight gender nonconformity sort of thing um there's a lot of fear lots of stuff like that anyway but in in those communities this has been happening for decades i'm not going to say how many decades because it, it'll uh, show my ignorance but it's been it's been happening for you know for a long time so you had to find people who um not obviously i mean the holidays are very uh outside of the ritual you know kind of a superficial region reason to have to find a family um but i mean part of this like community and building support and uh you know and support network networks and that kind of thing um that that does require uh finding a new family finding people who are like you who accept you who love you and um you know i'm making it sound like a chore of course just over the process of kind of losing your family and trying to find your footing um sometimes you can can find people who are really loving and accepting and and that's beautiful you know for people who have never had that experience so it mixed bag can be a, a very mixed bag for some people it's just sad right for some people it's depressive and they are immobilized and uh you know lethargic and maybe they already have seasonal affective disorder and uh you know because everyone it well not everyone it's obviously an exaggeration, but lots of people are, uh, you know, affected by lower levels of vitamin D when you've got, um, you know, less sunlight and you're outside less, even if it were the same amount of sunlight. So, you know, increase your vitamin D during the cold winter months for those of us in North America. Yeah. And I also have a question for you. It's a little bit more general and I'm not sure if we can answer it specifically, but does grief change people fundamentally can it change people fundamentally uh short answer everything changes everyone fundamentally i mean longer answer it kind of depends um i mean i i actually do believe it's it's uh it does change some aspect of us um but you know whether that's noticeable or not depends a lot on you know the sort of supports that you have available to you um or do you have people in your life you can talk to not just a therapist although that's a great place to start um but also do you have friends and family and and uh you know things like that that you can confide in um mutual friends with uh, a lost one loved one or if it's a family scenario um you know people who who know the people in your family so you have that kind of shared experience and uh you know that sort of solidarity if you have that if you have you know generally high resilience factors um which you know things like pets kids plants stuff that you have to look after 
um, you know, anywhere that you can um, put in effort and be seeing uh, a meaningful kind of result. Um, so, you know, people who volunteer, people who are involved in their community in other ways, these are all resilience factor factors. And the higher you are in that resilience is the easier that it's going to be to kind of make it through a grief relatively unscathed, right? Um, there's gonna be a lot of stuff that happens in grief that's neither, I don't really like to label things good and bad, neither effective nor ineffective. It's just kind of, you just gain insight into something that you don't know about otherwise, right? Um, so, you know, I've been doing grief therapy with clients for, well, since I was a student counselor, so for three and a half, four years. And uh, it's, you know, it's it's a different, it's a different way to do it when you're on the side that hasn't experienced much personal grief and loss, which I hadn't as a student and that kind of thing. And then over the course of the pandemic, I've gone through a series of losses and now I have a little bit more insight and I, I don't necessarily think that it's changed me and how I live my day to day, but it's, it's definitely changed how I conceptualize grief and, um, you know, interact with my clients. And I imagine a lot of that is implicit, but also some ways explicitly. 100%. And I appreciate what you said that this entire grieving process, it's, it is very personal. And it is so different person to person. And we experience it all differently. However, having that support system makes it maybe just a little bit easier. Not Absolutely. that it's an easy process, no matter what. But having that support system, having that found family, having even something to take care of and a steady routine, because we are creatures of habit. If there's anything I've learned, starting to look into psychology and how humans work and function and and are their best themselves, it's through routines and habits more than anything. And it's so important as well that we take that into consideration along with your first point about, yes, the holidays are going to be difficult, but is it difficult because of the actual holiday itself? Or is it difficult because of the routine of maybe this is the, you know, one of six times per year you would see this person specifically. And now that interaction is no longer in your routine. Mm -hmm. um, and in situations like that, what are some things we can really look out for and maybe shifts we can make in our routine to maybe make it a little bit easier as well? Um, so you mean shifting around a routine that was previously uh, set up in such a way that it would now be triggering or mm -hmm. uh, exactly. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, if we're, again, if we're talking specifically about families, um, and people who are still alive and that kind of thing, um, you know, you, you might want to put together, and again, this is very personalized, but, um, you might want to put together like, going back to that found family, like a, a get together, um, a term that has, I think, picked up steam, at least in the last decade, or maybe that's just when I started paying attention. Um, but uh, Friendsgiving, instead of Thanksgiving, right, like, and you have all your friends over and you do the like potluck thing or whatever, you know, is important to you. And I know there's like, Thanksgiving itself is a contentious issue historically. But I mean, you know, the the idea of getting together and, and, and sharing that, that moment that would have otherwise been part of, of your relationship with someone else, um, you know, rewriting those memories. And, 
you know, for my clients who have physically lost someone, like someone has passed away, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of ritual building with my clients lately, um, which is to say, like, is there something about them that you loved? Is there a little trinket of them that you have? Is there a photo that you have? Do you have some of their ashes? Like, do you have something, a totem or something that you kind of carry around with you, a photo that you that you talk to, that kind of thing? And, you know, is there a way that you can incorporate it into either your daily life or, um, you know, these days that were previously really special, right? So, um, you know, I, I have a friend, not a friend, I have a client who's, uh, who's just had to sell uh, a car that that uh, she and her dad had picked out together and um it it was it was an interesting process to be like can you take like like the little lighter thing we're like trying to brainstorm like if there was something from the car she could take and I said okay if you can't take anything like take a photo you know maybe while you're waiting for your you know your partner because she was waiting for a partner to come with her uh it's like maybe while you're waiting for your partner like have a talk with your dad we spoke about you know kind of talking out loud to people who are no longer in our lives and that is I mean theoretically something you could even do with people who are alive and in therapy um there's a specific technique uh two chair or empty chair depending on how you're approaching it um and I'm not an emotion focused therapist or a, a gestalti so I'm probably getting that that mixed up but one of those two um you've got someone else in the empty chair um that you're you're sort of visualizing there and you're talking to them right and and this is one of the ways that we can kind of work with uh getting getting closure getting that closure um in those situations so re restoring the narrative you know making something new of old painful rituals um mm-hmm. making it mean- meaningful in a new way mm-hmm. that definitely sounds like a a good way to tackle things in the future as well like rewriting those painful memories i think is very effective for certain people and since you also brought up a little bit of emotions and closure i feel like at every point in the grieving process we feel like maybe we've grieved. We feel like maybe we have received closure and then another wave of emotion hits us. And then another, you know, kind of cycle of grief occurs when we feel like we've had closure and we feel kind of those emotions coming on again. And it's confusing. What are some, you know, almost like emotional symptoms or physical symptoms kind of come along with that process that we can look out for in the future? Because maybe we feel like we've gotten closure um, the thing with grief is that it's, it's something that you just deal with, unfortunately for life and never actually goes away much like our healing journey. Yeah. There isn't a, you know, it's not linear. There isn't an end point. So what can we really look out for? And what we can go into next is how we can watch those signs in the future and really take care of ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's just generally a good idea to kind of every once in a while sort of take conscious stock of what's going on in your body, Um, you know, just to get a sense of yourself, right? Like when I'm sad, how do I feel when I'm happy? How do I feel when I, you know, and, um, you know, I know mindfulness is a big buzzwordy thing right now, Um, but, you know, but actually like being mindful of, 
the, the states that you're in and um, what's going on with you physiologically and emotionally and all that kind of stuff, the more you take stock of it, the better idea you're going to have, right? The more data you're going to have across time of how you are in different instances. And, you know, it becomes easier to tell when something's off. Right. And so, again, because grief is so different for everyone and even within those five um, states of grief, we we still like depression. <laughs> there's like there's activated depression and immobilized depression. Um, when we're talking acceptance, some people accept by like throwing themselves into uh, their work uh, or, well, I mean, I guess it's argued whether that's acceptance or not, but I mean, some people throw themselves into, you know, projects. Um, some people, you know, reach out to others. Some people, um, you know, take quite contemplative time, um, you know, bargaining, anger, denial. Again, all of these are going to look so different from person to person. There's a really interesting study that came out, I think it was published in like 2013. Um, what's the title here? It's Bodily Maps of Emotions. And uh, the researchers have long names that I don't, I can't pronounce, but I'll maybe send you the link if, if that's the thing that you can share with your audience. And uh, and so basically what it's doing is um, they they exposed their research participants to different stimuli and uh, like differently emotionally balanced stimuli. And they had them self-report where in their body um, they felt things happening. And um, so they they came out with this map um, and you have basic and non-basic emotions and um, basic are like anger, fear, disgust, happiness, sadness, surprise, neutral. It's these things that are um, not not complex, but they're, you know, they're sort of base core emotions. And then you've got uh, anxiety, love, depression, contempt, pride, shame, envy, these sort of mixed emotions or nuanced or whatever that are in the non-basic um, kind of category. And, and the body maps that they have, uh, it actually shows like... Um, where activation increased or decreased. So for instance, with depression, um, and my guess is this is not uh, activated the depression, this is immobilized depression, um, you see a decrease in uh, activation around the limbs, right? So arms and legs, that kind of thing. Um, you know, with, with something like anger, you're gonna get a lot of um, activation in uh, like the kind of upper torso, sort of chest, arms, head, that kind of thing. Um, you know, when we look at some of the other emotions that this can bring on, um, this isn't in the early stages of grief, but when uh, David Kessler is talking about um, finding meaning as the sixth stage of grief. He's talking after early grief, which he defines as the first two years. And after that, um, you know, kind of looking at, you know, was there any meaning that that came from this loss? Was there anything um, that, you know, how am I not not like the bright side of death, but like, how am I incorporating this into my life, into my being, how has grief impacted me? Um, as you were kind of saying before, how has it impacted me and, and what am I doing with that, right? And so actually one of the emotions we might associate with grief is happiness, which is strange to think of, but, but this sort of like fulfillment when you come to realize how this fits in with things for you. Um, one of the things he discusses is like living amends, which is, you know, if there's a, something you feel guilty for towards the, the lost individual or uh, 
distanced or whatever it is, um, you know, moving forward, how do you purposefully integrate that into your life so that you are kind of doing this consciously and in honor of that person or to make amends with that person, um, you know, in your life after their death or after, you know, the, the distance. Um, so, so there's that sadness, you get an activation in like the core in the chest. Um, so it's sort of like around the solar plexus kind of thing and up sort of into the lower part of your head and, and definitely in your neck. Uh, you see a little bit of a swelling there. People get reclumped, choked up, um, you know, and uh, what else? Anxiety might be associated with it. And, and with that, you've got a lot of core activation. So it's a lot of, you know, you're going to kind of fluctuate maybe between a lot of core activation and a lot of um, you know, assuming that you're immobilized, you've got a lot of sort of limb deactivation. So you're feeling kind of lethargic, kind of slow. Uh, the too long didn't read version of that is, uh, you know, I guess if you feel different, if you feel different, ask yourself why. Get curious. What's going on? What's going on in my body? What's going on with me? You know, did I do something different today? Uh, is it grief or is it just gas? You know? That's so true. <laughs> I also... I like where you were going with the concept of also feeling potentially happiness in this grieving process, which when you were explaining that and discussing that, an emotion that came up for me that felt like could be very related to that is also a lot of shame yeah. for feeling any kind of contentment or happiness or relief that maybe something is the way that it is, whether that is relief someone has passed due to them being in pain or due to the a difficult relationship being severed ties finally there's a lot of shame that comes along with that happiness unfortunately and do you see that a lot in people as well oh absolutely absolutely right it's it's interesting we've got two kind of competing cultural me messages right now and i'm so glad that you know grief is accepted and understood that you know everyone grieves differently like that's a it's a very i mean i think it's an understanding now um you know but also with that you've got everyone grieves differently but also you can't grieve in a way that makes me uncomfortable right and and so I think there's a lot of impression management, a lot of kind of performative grief. There are going to be times like, let's say you're cycling through quickly and you have days when you wake up and you're fine and it's only been two. Do you have to go out and act sad? You know, do I wear black for a year? Do I like, like where, until when am I allowed to ask for help? This is another thing with shame, right? Feeling like a burden, uh, you know, when you still need help more than a year out and people are like, oh God, are you still sad? And it's like, yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> right? Of course I am, uh, you know, because also we don't lose these relationships, right? It's like, you know, it's like a breakup, right? It's like, if you're still in love with the person, the love just doesn't just stop because, you know, someone unilaterally decided the, the relationship ends. And that's kind of what these emotional splits are. It's like, it's just, 
it's heartbreak with zero chance of closure. Um, and in the family situation where maybe there is uh, a chance to kind of reconnect, you still like nothing's guaranteed and it's so fragile and it's so upsetting. And, you know, there are gonna be times when, um, and I mean, people who have lost someone to death will probably recognize this a little bit more, but even still, um, there are gonna be times when you think about the person that you are no longer in touch with and, you know, not not just kind of absentmindedly thinking about them, but, uh, you know, let's say you're in a store and you're like, oh, so-and-so would like this, or, um, you know, for my generation and younger, like, oh man, I should send this meme to, you know, so-and-so or whatever. Um, and, you know, and it just sort of like the thought and the sadness or, or confusion or whatever kind of almost come at the same time. It's like this, oh, I can't right? Oh, right. We don't do that anymore. And that's, that's a really internally shameful response. If you have purposefully distanced yourself from something toxic, because it's like, why am I still longing for them? Right? Why do I still want them in my life? And, mm -hmm. and it's because it's not that easy. Right? No, no, it's not. And one thing that I've learned throughout all of this healing and self-work that I've done is just a, allowing and giving myself space and compassion to let those very conflicting emotions coexist. Yeah. I don't need to be just strictly sad about this. I can also feel maybe some contentment and still be sad at the exact same time, which I understand is confusing, but that is just part of being human. Yeah. You don't need to completely categorize yourself and just have one specific emotion that you feel at a time and go through those waves. Sometimes you're going to feel all 10 at once. And I think that is a really difficult part for people to process, especially with grief. It's already overwhelming to begin with. However, then going through the motions every day of just feeling different, of just waking up being different. You have to process so many different things at the exact same time. And like you said, I woke up today and I'm okay. Do I need to go outside and fake being sad just for society to accept that and make me work on their timeline instead of just let me be a human and have two feelings coexist in the same day? Yeah. Yeah, I think what's also incredibly important for us to discuss around this time of year, we mentioned boundaries a little bit earlier, but I feel like boundaries around grief is a much more tiptoed around situation than just please don't discuss my weight or please don't just discuss um, that I don't have a job right now or I feel like grief is a much stickier situation mm -hmm. I don't particularly know why because I um, haven't experienced such intense grief yet in my life. However, I've seen it with other people and I've seen it in other interactions where it's a topic people just aren't willing to discuss mm -hmm. because they don't want to cause even further discomfort. So I'd love to hear from you. How can we kind of set, set boundaries, confront this discomfort and take care of ourselves, really. Yeah, so there are a few things, um, you know, that we can kind of do to different effects. So 
one is if you are supporting someone who's grieving, um, taking their lead, right? Not not pushing them in any direction that they don't want to go. Um, but I mean, not pushing them in any direction, even if they want to go there, just let them lead and you follow and sometimes support. All the person needs is for you to sit silently with them while they like lean on your shoulder or something, you know, or or to come over and make a meal for them or uh, something like this. David David Kessler, I keep going back to him because I just did a David Kessler course, but um, David Kessler uh, has this fantastic um, example that he used because he lost his son a number of years ago. And uh, he said, you know, he got up one day and and went into the, I think it was the freezer or something. He was like really hungry and he hadn't cooked. He wasn't really taking care of himself. And someone had dropped off a meal for him. Um, like I think a neighbor or something or a friend had dropped off a meal for him. And it was so appreciated because he just wasn't in any state to be taking care of himself. Right. And, and of course not. Right. Losing a son. I mean, nobody ever thinks they're going to lose a child. Um, you know, it's supposed to be the other way around. So, so anyway, in that specific example, when it comes to, um, you know, there's some things that you can ask of people and also some things that you can do if you're the grieving individual. So again, asking for that support, um, difficult to do that without feeling like a burden for some people, but, um, you know, really, Oh God, self-compassion. How have I not brought that up yet? Self-compassion is a huge component of grief work, right? Huge. Because when you feel shame, when you feel guilt, when you feel like you can't, you know, trust others to, you know, support you, maybe you actually don't have anyone you can trust, in which case I recommend getting in touch with, if not a therapist, I mean, the we cost money. I get that. Um, I wish we were covered by healthcare, but we're not. So, um, you know, there are avenues of, there are like crisis phone lines. And um, I used to volunteer for this thing called Seven Cups of Tea. I think it's available globally. And it's just sevencups.com. And you can go and talk to active listeners, trained active listeners. They're not therapists, um, but they will just like listen to you talk and you know, be supportive and that kind of thing. And, and as with everything, you're going to get better and worse people doing it. But generally speaking, they're volunteers. They're not getting paid. They're there because they like actually want to help, you know. So so there's stuff like that, um, you know, things like better help, things like um, uh, talk space, stuff like that. So, um, you know, there, there are cheaper options if you need cheaper options. If you don't have any friends, you really should have a professional that you're talking to. But if you have friends, right? Like, okay, who's my best friend? Actually, I just did this earlier today with a client. Who's my best friend? And, you know, what would they say to me? Right. And so even if you can't call them up right now and have them come over, um, it's like, what, what would they say to me right now? Or what have they said to me in this exact situation? And, you know, and if you're having a hard time kind of picturing that, you can flip it around and be like, okay, if my friend was going through this, what would I say to them? Because doing those sorts of kind of projective um, sort of visualizations or thought experiments or however you want to conceptualize it, um, doing those for whatever reason is easier than giving ourselves the self-compassion. Um, I don't know why when we go to say nice things about ourselves, it's like, say something nice about yourself and people go, uh, 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 you know, and it's like, okay, well, what would you say to someone else? And they're like, oh, no problem. This, this, and this, it's like, I don't, there's this 
disconnect. I don't know. Um, you know, and, uh, so, so asking for help is one part of it. Um, also knowing where you're likely to be triggered, right? So if there are going to be, you know, I'm a huge fan of trigger warnings, but realistically, everything in existence can be a trigger. Everything, because phobias and weird traumatic anomalous events. And it's like, you know, like there are some people who need a trigger warning for like, I knew someone once who was phobic of ham. And it's like, well, you can't, right? Like a grocery store isn't going to put a trigger warning. So you have to know kind of where you're more and less likely to encounter certain things and ask yourself, like, is it important for me to be here? Is it necessary for me to be here? And if it's not, is there any way that I can do this differently or do or go somewhere else to achieve this, this goal or this task? Um, is there someone I can, again, asking for help? Is there someone I can ask to go do it for me um, or something like that? You know, um, being willing to receive help. So on the flip side, you get people who <clears throat> don't have to ask for help or have asked for help, but have specifications for how they want the help or whatever. You get people offering help. You're always going to get people offering help who don't know how to help. And, you know, and so being able to receive the help when you don't think you deserve it and also know how to communicate to people that they're not being helpful. Um, there's so many complex skills in this, but communication, communication is the foundation of all of this, right? Um, I statements are great, <laughs> a great, simple place to start. I feel X when you do Y, instead, can we try Z, right? So I feel really uncomfortable when you talk about my, you know, my estranged mother. Um, can we not talk about her? Is that, you know, like that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and that way you're taking all of the potential for their defensiveness away from them. You're not attacking them. You're not calling them names or any, anything like that. You're saying how you feel when they do something objective, like an objective observation of what they're doing. Uh, and then you're providing a solution, right? It's, it's uh, you know, that um, constructive criticism but with your own emotional input. So that's a good place to start. Um, you know, breathing. People don't pay attention to how they breathe. Um, and, and so deep diaphragmatic breaths. If you don't know how to do a diaphragmatic breath, I suggest looking it up on YouTube. But basically what you wanna be doing is breathing into your stomach, right? It's not your stomach, like your, you wanna be, your lower abdomen should be moving up and down if you're lying on your back instead of your chest. Lots of people breathe like this. But it's like that's it's very shallow. It's uh, kind of intense, um, and so you know you want to be doing those deep diaphragmatic breaths in a rhythmic way. And so you know at the very least, if you've lost control of everything else, you can control your breath, right? And that's like just grounding, centering. Okay, what next, right? No, that was fantastic. I really like the way that you broke down also how someone could help construct a sentence if they are getting to a point where someone isn't necessarily maybe listening or they feel like they aren't being seen or heard, yeah. they can go back to that very logical sentence of this, this, this instead. Yeah. 
I think that's extremely useful. And I would like to think that when you do take away all of the possible defensiveness you could receive, it also it's giving you a little bit more confidence. It's giving you a little bit more of um, like a gentle cushion, hopefully that you can receive the feedback and someone will be accepting of that. However, what if someone isn't say it's in a situation where the one person is feeling grief, they feel that someone is not being helpful. They bring it to their attention just to essentially help both of them because they don't want to damage their relationship, but the other person does take it personally, or they don't receive it well, or maybe they do get defensive. And then in turn, the person who is grieving just feels like that burden, or they just feel worse about the situation. How do we deal with family dynamics that are like that? Yeah. Okay. So you see this a lot, uh, in, for instance, um, Couples, married couples usually, but couples who come into therapy, couples counseling after they've lost a child, right? Losing a child is very uh, stereotypically linked with divorce. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get through, um, you know, that kind of challenge or obstacle, especially when one person feels at fault or to blame or whatever. Both people are grieving and need to act as supports for each other. And because grief is so different for everyone and the stages don't move linearly, you can be in two different modes, emotional modes, and have to work together anyway, right? And that's really difficult. So, I mean, basic thing, when you're either in couples counseling, I mean, that's a good place to kind of set ground rules and and boundaries and that kind of thing. But if that's not, the applicable place or appropriate place, um, maybe agreeing on a time to come together in a neutral space, maybe with a third party to mediate and lay out kind of the ground rules. Um, if, I mean, that's, it's a, it's a formal agreement. Uh, it's so, it's like, it's too formal for some people. So that might not be the way you want to go, but um, I, I'm really thinking specifically of couples, just so you kind of like know what, what you can and can't bring to the table at what times. Um, Very easy thing to do, take a break, right? So like, you know, you're in the room together, so-and-so won't shut up about the loss or, you know, how you don't see grandma anymore or whatever. And you can't can't be there with that. You're getting irritable, you're getting sad or whatever, whatever it is. Just setting up, excusing yourself you don't have to provide any explanation but if you want to you can be like I'm just gonna just feeling a little bit you know I need to take a walk or something right go for a walk it's a great going outside and breathing fresh air um especially if you don't live in the city but I mean going outside and breathing fresh air is generally a fantastic reset um also oh man I learned this one recently it's fantastic if you're activated um, taking an ice cube, rubbing it on the back of your neck and along your jawline, it stimulates the diver's reflex, which automatically reduces your heart rate. So that's just like a great, I give it to everyone. <laughs> I'm like, use it because, oh my God, that's amazing. Splashing water on your face does the same thing. Of course, the ice cube is less messy. Um, you know, so, so like using grounding and breathing tools after you've distanced yourself from the person who's triggering, 
um, you know, if they follow you, which is a thing that happens, uh, you know, and you need to put more physical space between you, like holding up your hands, like physically being like, no, I'm sorry, you can't follow me any further. I really need to be alone right now. And if they're not respecting that, then you got to ask yourself like, okay, what, why am like, am I here because I have to be here? Do we live together? If we live together, that's a different story. If we don't live together, can I just leave? Um, Cause, or like, can I ask them to leave? Um, or, you know, something like that. Is this a situation where we're going to have to get the cops involved? Hopefully not. That's, you know, not as common, but, but still happens, right? Um, you know, when, when tempers flare, when, um, and of course, sadness, uh, and, and, uh, anxiety and, um, irritability and all that kind of stuff are so intertwined, um, that it's like, yeah, I mean, tempers can, can flare and, and domestic violence under like good circumstances can happen. So, well, good circumstances, like neutral circumstances, um, you know, so, definitely any sort of stressful situation, uh, you can have that kind of thing. So safety, comfort, and emotional stability, honesty with yourself, be honest with yourself. If you need to remove yourself from a situation, remove yourself. If you can't figure out a way to be calmer given the circumstances, and, and by that I mean, again, using those, those deep, slow, rhythmic breathing, the um, you know, grounding tools. If you just search grounding tools on Google, you'll find a whole bunch of lists and it's not like any grounding exercise is going to make it worse for you. Um, I can't think of any that would, they're not all going to work, but you know, you, not all grounding exercises work for everyone, but there is a grounding exercise that works for everyone. So, you know, you just got to play around with it a bit. Yeah. It's, it's tough when people don't respect boundaries. It's especially tough when you've you've cut someone off like a toxic family member or something and then you're in a situation where you're with someone and you're both grieving about the loss of this family member and then they don't respect your boundaries and now you're faced with a situation of do I also have to cut them off and I don't just mean once I mean like they repeatedly are not respecting your boundaries um, or maybe you've set some consequences and they're just ignoring your boundaries and so now you have to implement the consequences and they're mad and you know and it's just it can get really messy uh, emotionally so you know I mean the more severe it is the more afraid you are the more you've got to seek outside help um, if it's just a simple matter of discomfort then yeah putting that space between 100% and I like the technique that you mentioned about the like the divers technique I've never heard of that before, but now that you're saying it, I was like, yes, that does make total sense. Yeah. Oh my God. When I learned it, it was like, oh my God, I'm telling everyone. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that sounds very practical as well. I know it's not always the easiest to physically remove yourself um, from situations, but that seems like something that is a little bit more attainable for people as well. So that's yeah. very useful. Ariana, do you have any last pieces of advice going into this holiday season of how we just need to take care of our emotions and really need to take care of ourselves, especially this year. Everything is already extremely heightened given the state of the world. And then unfortunately, if we're going through a grieving process as well, what advice would you have in order to take care of ourselves heading into this season? Be kind, be compassionate with yourself, self-care. Um, I know 
people are like, oh, bubble baths and cake. Yeah, right. And it's like, okay, well, that's not, I mean, that's one person's idea of self-care or the stereotypical one of like girls day at a salon or whatever. But I mean, self-care is going to be anything that you find personally recharging. So for someone who's really extroverted, self-care might mean going out with your friends. For someone who's really introverted, self-care might be staying home with a book. And that's, I mean, that's just, I'm like, clumping everyone into two categories um for you know it's uh you might find spending time with pets i have two guinea pigs uh when i'm feeling upset there's nothing i enjoy more than hanging out with my guinea pigs and uh they're cute and it's amazing so so there's that and uh you know but but just like find what works for you what do you love to do and if you don't know sit quiet with quietly with yourself for a second and see what comes to mind right? It's like, what do I want to be doing right now? Because sometimes we have to focus on what we need to do. And sometimes we have to focus on what we want to do. And if there's nothing that's absolutely pressing, and we're in a state that needs support, then listen to what you need. And uh, yeah, okay, it's not going to always be so cut and dry. It's not always going to be obvious. But, mm-hmm. you know, but there's this great, there's this, gra- I'm part of a bunch of therapy meme groups on Facebook. Um, there's this great image that circulates around the internet every once in a while. And it's, uh, it's like, a, it's a cartoon with like three panels and um, it's a raccoon. And the first one says, um, if you hate everyone else, like if you hate the world, go eat something. If you feel like the world hates you, take a nap. And if you feel like you hate yourself, go take a shower. And I I know it's meant to be like cute and funny, whatever, but it's so apt, so apt, right? It's it's one of those things. It's listening to yourself, right? And not everyone gets angry when they're hungry, but like there's a reason why we have the word hangry. It's because it happens enough, <laughs> you know? And, and so, you know, so listen to that. If you don't know, also you can ask someone else, what do you think I need right now? I'm feeling this way. What do you suggest? And if it resonates, great, go do it. And if it doesn't, that's fine too, you know, but uh, Mm -hmm. not, not forcing yourself to do too much. If you find yourself resenting, because I I do, I get clients asking me how, how to know when you're, uh, when someone's overstepping a boundary. And so if you are doing something for someone and you're grumbling about it the whole time, or thinking about how mad you'll be if they don't acknowledge it, then you don't want to be doing it. Then it Mm -hmm. probably crosses a line for you or you're doing it for the wrong reasons. So I tried very hard in my life not to do anything for anyone that I'm going to resent. Because if I resent it, it's my fault. Maybe it's their fault for asking. But like, I'm also an autonomous adult. Yeah, you also agreed to it. Yeah, right. Mm. And so, you know, the there, look, I'm a therapist who goes to therapy. I'm, I'm not saying that everyone has the same resources that I do, but being honest with yourself and figuring out what your patterns are and trying to, you know, either consciously overcome them or something like that. Ariana, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and discussing all things grief with us. Uh, where can everyone find you? Yeah. So um, if you're looking for a therapist um, and you happen to be in Ontario, my I mean, also, I'm just happy to answer questions. And, and like you did, you know, I have people reach out every once in a while and, and ask for, for responses about things. It's fine. Um, you can email me at Ariana at, at advancedhealth.ca. So that's A-R-I-A-N-A at advance so a-d-v-a-n-c-e health h-e-a-l-t-h dot c-a 